Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. An Elio's original. I was born with a special gift. The ability to mentally transform any situation into the worst case scenario. In my own brain. My therapist calls my gift catastrophizing. And that's why I'm uniquely qualified to scrutinize and analyze history's greatest disasters and find out who's to blame. They say history repeats itself. Not on my watch. My name is Rebecca Delgado Smith, and I am the alarmist. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to The Alarmist, a comedy podcast where we talk about history's greatest tragedies and figure out who's to blame. Today we'll be discussing the DACA 2013 garment factory collapse. Now, fashion. I mean, it's like we gotta have the latest trends. As a kid in the midst of my teenage angst, I really truly believed that a pair of pedal pushers and a crop top would fix my life. Then, the next month, it was the sheer button-down top that Alicia Silverstone wears in the movie Clueless. I mean, the cycle just continues even to this day. Quarantine is hard. If only I had a cute pair of jogger pants to get me through the lockdown. I mean, 10 minutes later, I'm finalizing my online purchase at J.Crew, and that's it. It's done. But do we ever stop to think about how or where this $15.99 blouse that you picked up from the sale rack at Zara was made. Like seriously, who makes our clothes? Perhaps if, if we knew the hardship and the human sacrifice behind it, you might put it back on the rack and make a mad dash toward the uh, mall exit. After this week's research, I know I will be. Here's what you need to know. In 2011, Bangladesh became the second largest apparel manufacturing center in the world, following China. Fashion brands around the globe flocked there to source $30 billion worth of ready-made garments for their retail stores. The reason? Bangladesh, along with Vietnam and India, was and continues to be one of the cheapest places to produce clothes. With a workforce of over 4 million people, mostly women, dedicated to the fashion sector, the country boasts over 4,000 garment factories. Though demand for their trade is high, most garment workers are not paid livable wages. 
The minimum wage for garment factory workers in early 2013 was 3,000 taka, that's roughly $35 a month. Workers overwhelmed by production quotas imposed by factory owners that oversell to their clients and underpay their employees are forced to put in over 72-hour work weeks. Yet their salaries don't come close to covering the $100 a month needed just to cover the bare necessities. Still, these paychecks allow an independence for the garment industry's mostly female workforce and continue to be in high demand. The garment sector in Bangladesh constitutes for over 80% of its foreign currency, and as you can imagine, the economy of the country is dependent on it. With the stakes so high and competitors abroad eager to snatch up their business, by the early 2010s, the apparel industry had become rife with sweatshops. Many Bangladeshi garment factories constituted for some of the worst working conditions anywhere, and industrial accidents were a major problem. Between 2006 and 2012, more than 500 Bangladeshi garment workers died in factory fires mostly due to faulty electrical wiring. Not much attention was paid to these accidents, not even in November of 2012, after at least 117 people died and more than 200 were injured when the Tazreen Fashions Factory went up in flames in a suburb of Dhaka, the country's capital. For many, it was no surprise when just five months later, disaster struck again. It was pure chaos. A giant plaza with a market and several clothing factories inside. During morning rush hour, it simply collapsed. On April 23, 2013, large structural cracks were discovered in the Rana Plaza building, an eight-story building that housed several garment factories along with a shopping center. The shops and the bank in the lower floors were immediately closed and evacuated. Garment workers in factories housed on the upper floors feared for their safety and left the building, refusing to return to work. The owners were warned that the building was not safe, but those warnings were simply ignored. And the next day, the workers were ordered to come back. No precautionary steps were taken to secure the building. No structural engineers were consulted. In fact, the building's owner, Sohail Rana, allegedly told media outlets that the cracks were, quote, nothing serious. Factory owners threatened to deny their workers monthly salaries if they didn't show up to their jobs. On the morning of April 24th, over 4,000 garment workers entered the cracked Rana Plaza building. Sometime before 9 a.m., the floors began to tremble, and the workers started falling. Many ran toward the staircases as the structure crumbled. Workers became pinned under heavy machinery as the floors above them came down on top of them. It took 90 seconds for the entire Rana Plaza building to collapse. One account from a man who worked on the seventh floor said he awoke caught underneath the pillar. When he opened his eyes, he recognized a good friend of his who worked on the second floor. He did not know how he ended up so close to him. The only explanation was that his floor had fallen five stories down. He was rescued days later. Unfortunately, his friend did not survive. All in all, including rescue workers, 1,134 workers were killed in the Rana Plaza building collapse. Nearly 
2,600 workers were injured, many of them critically. Those injured workers suffered from amputated limbs or organ failure that left them unable to continue to work. Survivors were trapped under tons of rubble and machinery for days before they were able to be rescued. The last survivor was pulled out two weeks after the building collapsed. This very preventable tragedy became a symbol of global inequality. Clothing labels found amidst the rubble, such as Benetton, The Children's Place, and Joe Fresh, amongst others, came under massive scrutiny after the collapse generated negative press worldwide. The Rana Plaza Garment Complex Collapse is considered to be the deadliest unintended structural failure of modern times. Global trade unions have called it, quote, mass industrial suicide. Fun facts, a.k.a. death stats. The catastrophe injured over 2,500 and killed more than 1,100. It was the deadliest garment industry accident in modern history. According to the New York Times, Bangladesh is the world's second leading garment exporter, trailing only China. The Rana Plaza compound housed a total of five different textile factories. Spain's Mango, Britain's low-cost Primark chain, and the Italian label Benetton were among the retailers who have confirmed having products made at the site. Officials discovered cracks in the building yesterday, but workers say they had no choice but to go in. We didn't want to go up in the factory, she says, but management forced us to go and said there was no problem with the building. If this all looks tragically familiar, it is. Bangladesh has one of the largest garment industries in the world, and it's notorious. Last fall, there was a deadly fire at a factory that produced clothes for Disney, Walmart, and Sears. With us today, we have producer Amanda Lund. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, Alarmy. At Fact Checker Chris Smith. What's up? And our very special guest today is Nadia Agrawal. She's a writer and host of the Cardamom Pod, and she's also the founder and editor-in-chief of Kajal Magazine, which is a leading South Asian-centered art and opinion magazine. Hi, Nadia. Hi. We usually like to start our podcast by asking our guests, you know, if there's something that keeps them up at night, something that they have a lot of anxiety about... Uh, environmental degradation. I think like climate change has been really overshadowed by like the day to day, you know, the tragedy du jour. So that's definitely something that um, I think about when I need to be sleeping. I maybe it's because like I live in Brooklyn and we get lied to about our recycling system. So every like Ugh. little thing that you think that you're doing to like make the environment a better place and like that you're protecting it is actually like thrown out the window because they don't really sort trash and stuff. So like. I've seen, oh. like, our building manager just throw our trash and our recycling to the same bin. You know, stuff like that where you're oh, just no. like, yeah, that, that oh. gives me anxiety. <laughs> oh, my oh, God. Oh, that's so horrible. Like, they're just they're just trying to make us feel okay by pretending that things are getting recycled. But it's they're just, like, like patronizing us, patting us on the head, being like, yeah, 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 you're doing a good job. <laughs> exactly. Nadia, why don't you tell our listeners about the cardamom pod? Yeah, uh, the way we like to talk about the cardamom pod is it's everything about your favorite podcast. It's news, culture, the internet. But then we're all South Asian, so we add some flavor to the whole conversation. 
Um, it's it's just a really fun place. It's it feels a lot like what happens in our group chats, but like public for everyone to consume. And it's an extension of Kajal Magazine, which does the same but more. So it's it's just kind of. Uh, all of our favorite conversations in one place and we hope everybody else likes it too. And we feel so happy and lucky to have you uh, for this particular tragedy so you can give us this, your South Asian uh, perspective on this absolutely terrible tragedy. So let's get started with the owner of the building. His name is Sohail Rana. According to Al Jazeera, a court in Bangladesh was sentenced, uh, has sentenced the owner of the building that collapsed and left more than 1,100 people dead in 2013 to three years in jail for unaccounted income. Officials discovered that the top four floors were constructed without building permits. UCA News says Sohail Rana, the owner of Rana Plaza, was found guilty of accumulating property and money through corrupt practices by a special court in the capital, Dhaka, on Tuesday. Officials said police and media investigations found multiple irregularities in building construction and management. Sohail Rana, a local Muslim and politician, forcibly grabbed swampy land from a Hindu man and constructed the building by filling the swamp illegally. The building was approved for residential use and a shopping complex, but it was mostly rented for garment factories. The authorities allowed a six-story building, but two additional floors were added illegally. I mean... I mean, I think we should start with, firstly, Sohail Rana, because obviously he's behind all of this, but also I would say smarmy business practices in South Asia. Mm. This whole phenomena of being able to just add extra floors without permits is like not, I, I didn't even blink when you said that. I was like, yeah, that sounds like, that sounds like home. That sounds like India. That sounds, I'm sure it's like Bangladesh as well. Like, I mean, just all kinds, I, I visited my family in Delhi recently and they had gotten the outside painted and it was just like some dude with like blue paint and there was like it was like weeks later after this had happened and their plants were still covered with blue paint out in the front it was just so like <laughs> slapdash like okay just paint it fine you have like all the materials we'll just pay you to paint it which i assume is what happened with those floors too they just like found a local crew and then just got it done and they didn't tell anybody and like I mean, the people who work there, so they need that money. So, like, no one said anything about it. And it just sort of sounds all, like, part and parcel with, like, business culture. It it feels like there was a lack of oversight. Perhaps we want to put that up on the board as well. Um, I mean, a lack of oversight, whether it be from the government or um, from... Like uh, business I, bureaus, a, yeah. Yes, business bureau. Whatever exists, yeah. A great, you know, institution to, or organization to, you know, apply to this situation. Um, you know, it, there, there was definitely like a, a lack of construction watchdogs is what they, what they called it on The Guardian. Uh, the buildings commonly get underbuilt. No one's watching them. This is common, a common practice with DACA's contractors, there's no government regulator, and there's no overall project management. They just build whatever they want. <laughs> and also, it seems like wherever they want, too, right? Because you were saying it was built on a swamp. And, mm. you know, we have that issue here in Southern California. Like, there's a reason why the wildfires are so devastating. It's because properties are being built in 
areas where wildfires are more likely. You know what I mean? So like it kind of starts with picking the right plot of land. Yeah. I mean, you, you see that, but you see that in America too, in the sense that like all of Florida is pretty much built on a swamp yeah. similarly. And then you get surprised when you're like, you read the headline, like man falls into sinkhole and you're like, Oh, that's so crazy. But like, it's not because it's, it's not like stable ground. <laughs> What about like building on landfills as well? I feel like that's become so normalized, but that's also batshit if we think about it. So how do we categorize this? What do you think the best way to put it up on the board is? Is it like... um a- Bad foundation? Ooh, that's good. <laughs> yes. Or like uh, We also put up lack of oversight, right? The bureau yeah. situation. We have, yes, lack of oversight. It seems like a place that employs like 10,000 people plus should definitely be like kept watch over at some point but it's that's the craziest part to me it's like there's it's like a small city this factory and like there was still no oversight it's not like it was someone's like basement sweatshop you know this was like a massive structure there's a new york times article that's really interesting um that i highly recommend before the collapse of the rana plaza uh western companies like Primark, Mango, PVH, which is the parent group of Tommy Hilfiger and uh, Calvin Klein, largely depended on their own auditing practices or uh, the words of owners to monitor suppliers in Bangladesh. Accidental deaths and ill treatment were commonplace. So essentially, these companies would go in and because they knew that there was no government oversight it would then fall on their, it would be their responsibility. So what they would do is just ask the owner, like, uh, is this place like sound or, you know, or we're doing everything uh, good here? And they'd just be like, yeah, for sure. And so then that was it. (laughs) That's as far as they went. They should go up on the board too, right? The companies who... Oh my God, yes. We yes, ha- I mean, absolutely. I mean, we're, we're going to get to fast fashion, people. Okay, Trust sorry. me. I have I'm a, just... A I'm whole... Getting a okay, just- okay. Let her go through her process, but it feels like, let's just put fast fashion up on the board already. Everyone's waiting for it. We do have to talk about how poorly constructed these buildings um, were for a long time, and these workplace accidents were commonplace like we're talking for years can we put sexism on the board because a lot of these women are young they're women typically which is why when a lot of these accidents happen to them there's probably not a lot of like investigation into it or even like public care about it and i would also even say like poverty or classism because the reason why any of this happens is because like you know rich people can get away with mistreating people who need money so it kind of feels like that's also part of this whole thing. Like 4,000 people would not have shown up to work if it wasn't so desperate, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And there were even uh, reports I read that most of the people who did show up to work were the women. Also, from what I understand about the garment industry in South Asia, a lot of the men are actually managerial staff. So like a lot of them are in positions of power, you know, either to bargain or to make more money, but also like to not show up to work is not as big of a deal because they are part of like the administrative administrative force forcing people to even go to work. And a lot of times like women who work in these environments are actually used to abuse because they often receive sexual and physical abuse at the hands of their male managers. And they're probably used to like being in threatening working environments, hostile working environments, just to make like even the fraction that they should be making. So in a lot of ways, like it's such a, a, like really op- like vicious cycle, I guess. I, I couldn't agree with you more. So 
Up on the board. We have it, Amanda, right? Yep, I got it all. <laughs> now, let's talk about fast fashion. The Yay. fashion industry. Put them up. So, uh, fast fashion, it grew out of the continuing efforts. Uh, this is from an art- article uh, from The Guardian. Fast fashion grew out of the continuing efforts of the leading Western brands that dominate garment sales to find new ways to coax further demand out of the saturated market. So it relies on a variety of different elements, no seasons, but a year-round product flow, low stock levels in stores to encourage people to make repeated impulse purchases for new products, a supply chain that can respond when shop staff notice that customers somewhere in the world suddenly seem to favor a particular style, cutting-edge information technology, the existence of huge numbers of young adults for whom shopping is the primary leisure activity, and our obsession with celebrities and their clothes, and of course, low prices. So in in the 1900s, 15% of a U.S. household's income was spent on clothing according to the U.S. government statistics. In 1950, 12%. By 2003, the figure was 4%. And by 2020, a mere 2.8%. A big purchase of clothing was once celebrated as a special occasion or a rite of passage. Uh, uh, You can get a perfectly wearable T-shirt for less than the price of a sandwich. In 1997, the average British woman bought 19 items of clothing a year. Ten years later, she bought 34. Wow. I guess you could say we've been trained or we've been accustomed to this new culture or this new relationship with clothes. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've definitely, especially when I was a little bit younger now, I try to be more conscientious. But I mean, it's also a way to buy clothes that are trendy, that you're like, oh, this isn't necessarily a forever piece, but maybe (laughs) I'll try these, I don't know, wide-legged cargo (laughs) pants that... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I could go pick up at Zara for $30, and if I wear them out and everyone laughs at me, it's not a huge deal because I can just <laughs> trash them. But I think, yeah, I mean, it is just crazy hearing the statistics on how what percentage of our income we're spending compared to what they were spending back, you know, in the early 1900s up to the 1950s. That that really says a lot. Yeah, and, and this has been going on for a while. Like, I remember being in college and, like, buying those uh, scarf tops. Do you remember those scarf tops? They're, it was pretty oh. much like a triangle that just, like, covered your breast. But, like, again, like you said, I knew that wasn't going to be a forever piece. Like, it just <laughs> even, even if it, it lasted quality-wise, like, my body, I couldn't maintain that <laughs> forever. I blame social media. It's, I mean, I say it like all the time as someone who works in social media. I blame social media. Uh, Rana happened in 2013. So that was, I was like 22, which means Instagram was a thing. Instagram, Facebook, people posting pictures continuously. And like we became really conscious of not being pictured in the same thing twice because it became like, it's like a kind of, it's like a weirdly embarrassing thing that we all just decided, I guess, that to be embarrassed by it. And so like, yeah, having the new thing made sense because it went part and parcel with being photographed more and like having people like mm. see you and observe you and stuff. And I think I, I know for me, it, it went also hand in hand with like a weirdly deep sense of frugality that was kind of beat into me. So like this is a way to like be frugal without actually like being frugal, right? Because like you spend $10 on like a pair of like sneakers or whatever 
then you don't feel bad about it at all on any level. And then, of course, when they disintegrate, then you just get a new pair. And you, you work that into your system as well, right? You're like, oh, I'm going to be back in like six months or three months, but it's okay because it's $10. Amanda, get your typing fingers ready. I've got something pretty good Ooh. for the board. Are you okay. ready for this? Okay. Sarah Jessica Parker. <laughs> and please explain. I think Sex in the City and, and the time it came out, I think it put an unreasonable expectation on women to have, I think her closet was endless. Yeah. She never repeated. She like never repeated clothing. And like, that's just, and, and what, what was she like? She was, what, she the was equivalent a poor writer living in New York poster. City. <laughs> like she was nothing. Like how could you possibly, it's totally unreasonable expectation, <laughs> but I know all the women when I, we were in college, it was on, right? Something yeah. Around that time. And all of our friends, like everyone wanted, you know, they, they wanted to be like one of the, the sex in the city girls. And so I just think it, and, and you can maybe loop like throw in just like TV in general, like the characters never repeat clothing. Like it's a very rare show that actually like the closets repeat, you know, you see re- repeated like clothing right. in, in the closets. And I just think it sets an unreasonable expectation. Well, that's interesting. Okay. So I'm going to add Carrie Bradshaw up on the board. Although I will say that I don't believe Carrie Bradshaw ever bought fast fashion. It was almost all high end designers. Or yeah. vintage. Do I have that wrong? Or vintage, vintage, which is, Lots stores. of vintage. Mm-hmm. And I would estimate that she probably spent 85% of her income on clothes. <laughs> I don't or know how shoes. she pays for that apartment. Shoes. Or shoes. If you're counting on her shoes, Manola Blahniks, she... right? <laughs> yes. I, you know who we should kind of consider for the big clap is uh, Princess Catherine. Princess Kate. She's uh, William's wife. Now, she makes oh. it a point to be seen photographed in her very fancy, beautiful clothing multiple times. Tiffany Haddish does that too. Oh, she, she wears, oh I she, like that. She rewears her dresses, which I think is a great, I think that's great. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Now, now I'm going to start thinking about that. Only, I'm only going to have one outfit like every three months that I post on Instagram. You'll only see me wearing that <laughs> outfit. <laughs> well, what about uniforms? I Let's think- just go straight to uniforms. It's so funny that when, like, celebrities act like regular people, we're like, oh, my God, I love her. (laughs) She does this thing that we all do because I can't afford to buy a new dress every month. I mean, I I appreciate more in, like, Broad City when, like, Abby wears her blue dress multiple times and it just, like, shows up and you know when she's, like, wearing it because she's feeling herself. So it's, like, a whole signal. But also it's because we all have that one dress that we put on when we, like need to feel good about our ass. Yeah. You know, so, like, that's what what it is. And, I yeah, I, I, I respect it. I refuse to blame Carrie Bradshaw, though. I will blame (laughs) the silk flowers that they made her wear because I feel like every tacky trend that was on Sex and the City did make its way to fast fashion really quickly. That's true. We should we should um, actually put chevrons, silk flowers. Yes, Mm. we should put up the wardrobe department of Sex and the City. That's what's to blame. Before we move on, because uh, we want to, I need to talk about fast fashion more. I think we need to talk about the effects on the environment because this kind of stuff really blew my mind. Uh, Most of fast fashion garments are made out of synthetic fibers like polyester and elastics, like AKA your, the carries uh, flowers on her hair. Um, And this means that when they end up in a landfill, they will not decay. 
because it's not cotton. Uh, they're not biodegradable, and they might as well be laced with lead and pesticides. Essentially, it, it will slowly release chemicals into the environment for hundreds of years, not to mention the chemicals involved in making them. Production of polyester gives off 706 million tons of greenhouse gas per year. Fashion produces 10% of the world's harmful emissions. It is the second most polluting industry on earth. The only thing worse is oil. Oh my God. (laughs) That's hard to swallow. And so, so it's not just like, you know, we, we really do have to think about not only where, how, who is making this clothes. Right. For us. And, the sacrifices that they're making in order for us to have this, you know, whatever t-shirt and not just that, but it's, it's what the kind of what the industry is, is doing to the environment, which kind of circles back all the way to the, you know, first thing we talked about with Nadia, which is what keeps her up at night. (laughs) So the fashion industry is not just to blame for this absolutely terrible tragedy, but also for Nadia's lack of sleep. Yeah, for my anxiety, for my cortisol increases. Thanks so much. I actually, I wanted to say something about this, which will also like, you know, uh, freak you out a little bit. But you know how now there's definitely a big push away from fast fashion, at least on Instagram, at least in my echo chambers, towards like, more ethical fashion, more sustainable fashion, all those like, you know, potato sack dresses that are like hand dyed and like, <laughs> onion skin diet whatever it is right that do, no- and they all that do like nothing the same. for your ass that do don't do anything <laughs> no. that does nothing all this crunchy granola bullshit so the issue uh, so actually in one of our first episodes on the cardamom pod we brought on this fashion designer named natasha sumant who runs her fashion line out of india and her whole thing is also about she is looking really closely at sustainable fashion because she cares about all these things too and what she told us really like freaked me out because she told us that there there were actually no internationally agreed upon or actually agreed upon rules at all for the term sustainable fashion or ethical fashion or even mm. environmentally friendly eco-conscious fashion. There's there's no body that has decided what that rubric is. There's nothing. So literally anyone like Reformation who makes tons and tons of clothes all the time and they can promise you, oh, the CO2 index on this is great. Don't worry about it. We use recycled fabrics. We use fabric scraps. We don't, you know, we've never kicked a puppy ever. All of that, it doesn't matter because there's no one who can actually watchdog that. <gasps> That's terrible. Okay. It's like natural food. <laughs> it's your landlord mixing the recycling it's like the with city the trash. Away my recycling. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's the same thing. They promise you one thing and they can do whatever they want behind closed doors. <gasps> uh, let alone all the problems with like, you know, a lot of these fashion brands who don't have size inclusive fashion, who treat their employees like shit, who are extremely racist behind scenes. All of these things that we would think that, you know, would normally fall under ethical actually don't actually apply. And they can even say ethical even when they're, you know, being dicks generally. <laughs> Wait, so let's put uh, the fashion brands up on the board and oh yeah, their desire to profit at all costs. According to New York Times, the frontline responsibility is the government. So they're passing the buck. But the real power lies with Western brands and retailers, beginning with the biggest players, Walmart, H&M, 
Inditex, Gap, and others, says Scott Nova, Executive Director of Work Re- Worker Rights Consortium, Consortium, uh, a labor rights organization. The price pressure... The price pressure these buyers put on factories undermines any prospect that factories will undertake the costly repairs and renovations that are necessary to make these buildings safe. Some factory owners say that they cannot raise the wages or invest in upgrading facilities because of the low prices paid by Western brands. These brands have so much power because they bring so much income into these countries. Mm-hmm. And they say, we want these orders and we want it for a certain price. If you can't give me that price, we're going to take it to another country. Right. Someone else is going to give me the price that I want if you don't give it to me. International business, there's just no regulatory body, right? Like there's just no, I mean, it, it, it only comes to a head when you're talking about like, human rights abuses on like a mass scale that's like egregious and like can have a splashy headline or something. There's no like real regulatory body for like international sit like, right? Like there is nothing like that. Right. I no, I don't think there's a, a, a world business bureau. Is there? <laughs> I've never heard of that, but <laughs> I'd love to try to get it started. Yeah. If, there's no treaties on how to treat your workers. Right. So even the UN can't help out here. Right. They can put the, uh, they can put it on, you know, the, the building codes, you know, they, they can do a treaty and with, and they did after this building collapse, they, they all came together and like, you know, did certain things, which was that they made sure that the buildings were a little bit more secure, AKA they could hold the thousands of workers that these factories were employing because they didn't want the bad press to then come back to them and they also have tried to employ people who give them a more a a higher wage but these owners of these brands are doing very well we've got stefan per uh it's not person it's person it's not person the sweden the sweden's richest man he owns 36 percent of h&m only 36 and his net worth is 28 billion oh good for him Tadashi Yanei. He's the richest person in Japan. <laughs> I believe he's the, uh, the head of Uniqlo. And uh, Amancio Ortega, who is the Spanish owner of Zara, his net worth is $73 billion. Zara is always the way I think about. I feel like they're responsible for all the world's problems. I don't know why. I just feel like every time I step into their store, it just like smells like human... <laughs> He, like uh, human rights violations. Oh, <laughs> it does. You know, there's just something about it. Like I, I just those those pants are just not worth it. <laughs> I, just, I don't know, man. I H and M and Zara are always what I think about, which is really interesting because with Rana, I feel like the companies that really stepped forward after like you know all the public scandal were like Joe Fresh, who doesn't exist anymore, and like um, Primark from the UK, which is still around and is actually in the US now as well. There are always companies that I think people in America didn't really have a lot to do with. And I know, I feel like H&M and Zara were also in that mix, as well as like, you know, Gap and stuff, but we just like somehow overlooked all of that. We we're just like, Joe Fresh, fuck Joe Fresh. <laughs> well, 
Well, because you Fuck know, those Joe Mama shirts. <laughs> we're like, I don't care. <laughs> yeah, we were like, we were like, we don't. Yeah, you know, like we were, to ourselves, we were saying like, how often do we really buy Joe Fresh? So like, yeah, yeah, we don't need Joe Fresh, but like, don't take away Target. Get out of here. We we need our Target. But Gap brand. is good. Yeah, Gap is fine. <laughs> Gap has a brand called Love. Like we can't. <laughs> they're on that. H and M has that eco conscious collection. The unisex collection. They're. They have their hearts in the right place. Yeah. I Before, you know, I do want to put up two things. One of them is the consumers who buy these clothes. This is oh, on yes, you, us. This is us. I know. It's me. It's me. And, and along with I that is you, millennials Nico. because they are the target demographic for fast fashion. It's not Gen Zers. It's probably a little bit of baby boomers. <laughs> and uh, what's before millennials? The Gen, Gen X? Gen X. Gen X. Gen X. Yeah, yeah. It's a little bit of Gen X. But uh, Gen Z, like, they're all about like, sustainability. They're way more conscious about this stuff. Yeah, Gen Xers would, could just get by on those baggy jeans and that, like, black T-shirt. You know, that, like... <laughs> Yeah, like my dad wore like Costco jeans his whole life. (laughs) He was, I don't know if I would call Costco fast fashion, like is Kirkland in that mix? I feel like, yeah, he he doesn't quite count, you know? Well, this is a different thing. Like if you make your fast fashion last a long time, then are you really a bad person? Is it really fast? Yeah. Is it fast then? Because, you know, like I have a pajama set that I, I bought when I you know, went to college. I remember I was eight. I've had it since I was 18 years old and I just wore it the other day. So it's from the gap. It's from the gap, you know, making fast fashion last. (laughs) That's a, that's a motto. (laughs) Um, so we have to, you know, we have to take responsibility for, uh, this, these kinds of, uh, uh, choices because we have a lot of power. In, in our purchases. Kirkland, by the way, I'm, I'm just digging into this a little bit. Kirkland, I guess, puts their name on other brands, right? So they, oh. they oh. buy the rights to other people's clothing and just... So it could be Kirk- fast fashion. Kirkland on there. So it, <laughs> so could, it comes out of the same factories, pretty probably. much. It's, yeah. Yeah. it's the classic black trash can, uh, blue trash can phenomenon. It's just, <laughs> it's just, we're throwing it all in the same Oh, I see, place. I see. <laughs> Oh, and finally, I, I just want to throw on uh, the brain up on the board because really it's the brain's desire for a bargain that leads us to this complicated, that, that's really behind this. When we shop, dopamine, you know, which we associate with uh, pleasure, the feeling of pleasure and satisfaction, how it works is it gets released when you experience something new, exciting, challenging, and a great way to score a hit of pleasurable dopamine when you're stressed is to shop, right? We've all heard it. Retail therapy, that's, that's where we go to. Um, and then the cycle goes, you know, you feel fear, you feel anxiety, you're stressed, you buy something, you get a squirt of dopamine, and then you feel better. You know, I have this app called um, Hormone Astrology or Hormonology, and what it does is it tracks like the trajectory of your period based on like what chemicals are being released into your bloodstream at a certain time during your cycle. And there is one where like I think like your progesterone is spike. One of those hormones, estrogen, progesterone, whatever, are spiking in a way that makes you feel like shit and actually does lead you to buy things. Like it's 
It's in the app. The app <laughs> says it. So, like, they're like, if you feel like buying something right now, don't. Just, like, blame it on, like, you know, the moon. So, it's, you know, it's kind of, it's definitely in the biology somewhere. I, it's, it's the sex hormone. Mm. I read something about how, like, the same hormone that gets released when you're, like, turned on and you're having a good time is also the same when, like, you actually hit buy on your digital cart. So, like, Ooh. I mean, if if shopping replaces sex, I I feel like there's a lot we can say about that. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, like, is it a bad thing? <laughs> Should we put our periods up on the board? <laughs> no. Honestly, I think shouldn't. it would. Be, honestly, I think it would be sexist if you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah. The, I mean, I feel that. I I I believe you because I feel that. And how right? and how about the the fact that you can they're starting to let's say track that digitally and that I'm sure maybe not but maybe your app sends that information to a retailer who can send you a oh, link to purchase god. something. Oh god, this is so scary. No, but that's that that's the kind of shit that like this data mining like wave that we're all sort of like being yeah, I mean, thrown I, ashore by, um, you know, that's that's quick. She's on day seventeen in her cycle. <laughs> no, no, but send me. her a T-shirt ad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure Alexa is trained to hear. Oh, I'm on my period, no, and then like all of a sudden. <laughs> hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. <laughs> um, okay, so Chris, why don't you read us through these? Okay. So, uh, this is 2013 DACA garment factory collapse. Who's to blame? So, hail Rana, smarmy business practices in South Asia, lack of oversight, bad foundation, building foundation, Mm. sexism, poverty, classism, fast fashion, the fashion industry, social media, Carrie Bradshaw, Silk flowers, uh, i.e. trends. The wardrobe department of Sex in the City. <laughs> Western fashion brands and their desire to profit at all costs. Consumers, that's us. Millennials, the brain, periods, and climate change. <laughs> so I, I do think that we can uh, start off by just taking the, our periods off. That's a, I feel confident about that. Okay. Uh, <laughs> As a, speaking from a guy, it's really bad to blame anything on a peri- on yeah. the period. <laughs> so knows. I'm okay with taking <laughs> periods off too. Just a tip to our male listeners out there. I I hear your uh, Carrie Bradshaw argument. Oh come on! You got to leave her on longer no, than that. No, I don't it, think so. I think people you take were, Carrie off. No, we. I'm got, sorry, but we've like got the fact silk that fl- her silk flowers and the wardrobe. Wardrobe department. Uh, I think we. Heavy. I think we take off all the Sex in the City what? because she was not buying fast fashion. That a, was all like high end designers. But she was a she was a cultural like yes, leader, Amanda. Think- and people, in order to keep up with her, they they could only resort to fast fashion. Okay, so, but but she she was 
shopping every day. We can take her off. We can take her off. Okay. But uh, that's fine. You guys not her (laughs) silk flowers. Something we didn't discuss. Something we didn't discuss in all of that are when uh, TV shows actually partner with department stores. Like when they have like collections and lines, like the Kmart Reba collection or the like JC Penny Kardashian collection, all of those mm. things are kind of what you're talking about, where like they're originators of trends and then it like, you know, trickles down Miranda Priestly style into the bargain bins. Right. So yeah. I blame the wardrobe department, but not not the workers, like the concept of a wardrobe department. Right. So maybe it's um a product it's like product placement it's the marketing really mm. it's the marketing department and to be honest it's it's the creator of sex in the city who's dictating is that darren star who's dictating to the wardrobe department what the vibe of the show is yeah it, it yeah but uh, darren star probably had to sell the show to hbo but in like, a way that hbo was like yeah we want that so <laughs> we're going down the wrong path we don't have much time let's get wait, back wait. on track you don't want to put hbo I- up <laughs> I concede. I concede. Although, the only thing okay, I'll fine. say, lastly, is that wasn't Sarah Jessica Parker like totally in charge of her own wardrobe, and like wasn't she the one pushing for all of the all of her fashion and all that stuff? Oh, I, what have you no, got against I'm SJP? Sorry. What is the I issue catered, here? I catered in New a... York, and I, I I worked at her table once. She was rude to me. So really, getting, no, no, no. Oh. I did. I did. She was not rude to me, but I did cater for her once. <laughs> Um, okay, so uh, what makes me feel better is that we still have social media up on the board, and I think that that is a big contributor. So we can take Sex in the City wardrobe department off and this, her silk flowers. We can't really blame the brain for giving us the dopamine. It's sort of just what it does. Like, we, we just need to blame our own habits, uh, you know. You know right. what I mean? The brain gives us the dopamine, but, like, that doesn't necessarily mean we're out of control of, like, trying to acquire dopamine, yeah, and I, I want to keep my brain, and I want to, you know, not... I, I want to still have sex. <laughs> I also don't think we can blame millennials. I think the economy was stacked against us, and so if we were able mm-hmm. to get a dopamine hit out of, like, a quick Zara buy or whatever, that's not really our fault. That's more like an environmental issue. Yes, and it started while we were children. We, we were tricked into it. Right. So it's all baby boomers' fault, which, as we know, like the source of all evil. Mm. So, <laughs> yep. We should. We could slap them. Yeah. Um, so what about we? We can now. I think we can put the fashion industry uh, with fast fashion, right? So we can okay. hold that together. Roll that in. Now, what about like we have like sexism, poverty, and classism? Maybe can those be rolled into something, or do we like one but more than the, the other? The capitalist heteropatriarchy. Yeah, put them all together. Let's, that's beautiful. Yeah, let's do that. Okay, repeat it slowly. <laughs> the cap. <laughs> yeah, it's a good way to like uh, redeem myself. The capitalist heteropatriarchy. <laughs> and if I you wanted to add to okay. it, the cis cap <laughs> cis capitalist heteropatriarchy. <laughs> okay, the cis. Okay, I like that. We like to add little extenders and extensions <laughs> and like bells and whistles to any kind of these terms. So that's always welcome. We do love to learn. <laughs> I, I, I also think we could, the lack of oversight could be um, uh, folded into the swarmy business practices in South Asia. Yeah, because we didn't talk about corruption. 
and the whole phenomena of them passing the buck, like, actually, like, someone was definitely paid off somewhere, and they are somewhere high in government, right? Like, all of that goes together. Yeah, I've read that some of these uh, garment factory workers are, uh, workers are uh, not workers, owners, are actually, like, in government positions. They're also, so... Mm. Yeah, corrupt government, too. Or they're, like, wealthy scions and in bed with, like, people who work in government. Like, right. it's all just massively incestuous and nepotistic. So then... Ooh. Keep, keep smarmy business practices, then. Yeah, definitely. Bad foundation. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, you wouldn't have built on a bad fan- foundation if you had better business practices. Yeah, that gets... Yeah, boring. we also didn't talk about, like, the illegal land seizure that was, like, underpinning all of this, right? Uh, interreligious tension... Like, all of that yeah. kind of goes together. Now, I, I don't know a ton about um, Bangladeshi uh, history, but I do know mm. that they are uh, mostly, I, I want to say it's like 95%, even though it's a sec- secular uh, government, it's 95% uh, Muslim? Yeah, well, so the history, so Bangladesh was like sort of formed in the 70s after their independence war. Um, basically, there was the partition that happened in 1947 that split India off from Pakistan, but then Pakistan was in two parts. There was Pakistan and then there was East Pakistan. And East Pakistan is what fought against Pakistan in the 70s for the right to use their language and basically self-determination and a lot of other really important things. And that's what led to the foundation of Bangladesh. So, like, Bangladesh as a part of Pakistan historically and a part of South Asia historically is is largely Muslim. Okay. Um, And so... We're saying that there, you know, there could have been uh, some religious tension based on like the the land leases that they were taken from the uh, Hindu uh, people. Yeah, potentially. I mean, I don't know the details, but that seems definitely likely. Right. I think that all comes under smarmy business yes. practices, to be honest, because like marginaliz- marginalization of like minorities is definitely a smarmy business practice. So maybe we can take off climate change now. And up le- what we still have left up on the board is the owner of the building, Sohail Rana, swarmy business practices, uh, cis-capitalist hetero-patriarchy, fast fashion, social media, Western fashion brands and their desire to profit at all costs, and the consumers. Mm-hmm. I think we could wrap up the consumers and Western fashion brands into fast fashion. Uh Uh-huh. Yes. And I also don't think we can blame social media because I I think there are larger things at play here. I I think the social media comes after, right? The social media aspect comes after. Yeah, I guess so. It reinforces, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't say it's what's at the root of this disaster. I mean, I don't... At the root, I wouldn't even say that Sohil Rana is at the root. He seems like a symptom of, like, a larger culture that, like, does all these terrible things. Right. Like, business culture that allows all this stuff to happen. Now, we could wrap him up into smarmy business practices in South Asia. It just depends if we want to be big picture or we want to... Uh, zoom in a little bit. Yeah, actually, could we even like remove the in South Asia part of this? Because I feel like this kind of shit happens all over the world. Totally, it's it's That's not fair. It's not special to South Asia. I am leaning towards 
sending fast fashion to jail, but I'm biased, but you tell me otherwise. (laughs) Leaning towards sending fast fashion to jail and giving the swarmy business practices the big slap. See, I think that the capitalist heteropatriarchy is actually at the root of all of these issues. Like, swarmy business practices comes under that, and fast fashion is also a symptom. Like, it's like a aspect of it, but it's not like what it is. So I would send that to jail, and then fast fashion gets the slap. I gotta tell you. Yeah. I agree. Um, And I agree because basically... Uh, cis capital's heteropatriarchy <laughs> is asking asks people to come up with a widget, like come up with a better. Um, it's like you know watching Shark Tank, like a better mousetrap or whatever. It's like, and somebody came up with the idea of like extremely cheap disposable clothing. Like that's an idea born out of the attempt to climb the cis capitalist heteropatriarchy ladder, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So without you know, so without that, like you, you wonder if fast fashion would even exist. So I, I, I kind of agree. Mm. That's an idea. But Chris, you know, your wife has been chasing <laughs> fast fashion with all of her heart for like a long time now. And I imagine we'll be kind of devastated if we don't nail it. So true. Because I, I, while I think cis capitalist hetero patriarch, I think you both are very correct that like, yes, at the root. But I have a feeling that now that we know this term, it's going to end up on the board for a lot of these disasters. <laughs> so we might have an opportunity to nail it on the next episode. If just Rebecca, I'm just giving no, you know, that little green seed of hope. But here's the thing: the capitalism, <laughs> it, 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 it is at the core of so many things. And yes, but but for this particular, for this particular uh, tragedy, don't you think fast fashion really just ought to get it? <laughs> it, 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 it both. I mean, they're sort of like yeah. I would say they're sort of like you can sort of say they're equally to blame. I mean. It is like the capitalism, the swarmy business practices, the, 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 the desire to make money at all costs versus the fashion world, which has been kind of like, see, which saw an opportunity and took it and has, has now put these countries and these garment factories in a, a really bad situation. So... It's not just capitalism. It's, it's the fact that they've put them in this terrible situation. It's what they've been doing for so long that has now gotten to the point where there are so many sweatshops and, and, and these buildings are cracking and the, the owners are sending their workers. So it's been a long time coming. I would, I would say that if, if, if fast fashion was responsible for anything, it's the Rana Plaza Club. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> like, of, of all of, like, the awful, awful things in the world, it is 100% responsible for that. Very generous of you, Nadia. Okay, so, you know, what I'm going to do is that I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send fast fashion to jail, and I'm going to give capitalism the big slap. Do we want to give the big clap to, to Princess Catherine <laughs> and... <laughs> I, I, I morally object to like encouraging royalty to do anything. They shouldn't exist. Um, like, you know what? If anything, I think we she'll just be... gave her a shout out. We just gave her a shout out. Hey, cool stuff. Uh, anyway, moving on. I think she'll be fine too. Yeah, she'll, I don't think she needs the clapping. 
Um, all right, I'm calling it cis capitalist hetero patriarchy. You're getting the big slap. Fast fashion. You're going to the alarmist jail. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> you finally got him. You nailed those bastards uh. to the wall. <laughs> Nadia, thank you so much for joining us today and helping us get to the bottom of this. Thanks so much for having me. After the 2013 DACA garment factory collapse, while 32 people were arrested and accused of various crimes for this tragedy, except for Sohail Rana, all those arrested secured bail and their cases remain in limbo. Rana received a three-year sentence for failing to declare his personal wealth to Bangladesh's anti-graft commission. He faces murder charges for the Rana Plaza disaster, but has yet to face trial for them. Families of the victims, as well as activists, are concerned that justice will be perpetually delayed or denied for the many who died and were injured as a result of the incredible amounts of negligence displayed by those accused. To this day, many victims have not been fully compensated. According to the New York Times, since the Rana disaster, Bangladesh has experienced one of the most effective campaigns of the globalized era to improve labor and safety conditions. Fearing customer boycotts, Western brands worked with unions, factory owners, non-governmental organizations, and the Bangladeshi government to improve safety with notable results. Fire alarm systems have been installed in thousands of factories, and fire doors, sprinkler systems, electrical upgrades, and improved building foundations have proliferated. In 2018, the minimum wage for garment workers was raised to 8,000 taka. That's roughly $68 per month. Wages, if still painfully low, have risen. Labor rights have improved, but there is still much work to be done. Cheap clothes are not cheap, said Kalpona Akhtar, executive director of the Bangladesh Center for Worker Solidarity. Someone always has to pay for them, and that someone is a worker. Vote for who you think is to blame by going to thealarmistpodcast.com. Follow us at the alarmist the on twitter at the alarmist podcast on instagram or email us at the alarmist podcast at gmail.com tune in next week we'll be discussing who's to blame for the election of 1876 Powered by ACAST.